Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. And hello to all of those online and all of our families out traveling for spring break. Hope you guys are having fun. And for those watching all around the world from Britain to Mexico to Australia to Ireland, we've got a lot of different countries represented. So welcome to New City Church. We are... We finished last week the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, and we are jumping into chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 this morning, and it's all about the rapture, the rapture of the church after the churches. And since it's spring forward here in Oklahoma City, I kind of thought I've got an extra hour to talk, so I made the slides a little longer today. Hopefully that's okay with everyone, but... So sit tight. We'll order pizza if you want. Stay up. Stay around. So we're just going to open up and read verses 1 and 2 in chapter 4. All right. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither. And I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one set on the throne. Okay, so that opens up the chapter. Ryan, thanks. Oh, that's not, those aren't the slides, buddy. Okay, we'll, we'll wing this for a second while Ryan fixes it. Oh, it's on different. There we go. Okay, caught up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so the, the two verses. After this is how it opens in chapter 4. And what it literally means in the Greek is metatauta. And it, it means after these things. And it's a direct reference to what we just discussed. So after what things. And the things we just went through were the seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, the church, the church age. And so if you remember the divine outline of Revelation, it's the only book of the Bible where Jesus gives us an outline of the book. Chapter 1 is the unveiling of who Jesus is as our king, as the true Lord and Savior. Chapters 2 and 3 are the seven letters to the seven churches the things which are, and then from beyond that afterward, in chapter 4, are, are the things which shall be hereafter, or after these things. And that's where we are in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And the church has closed, where we are in the book, the church age has closed. The last letter was Laodicea, which we went through last week. And now the bride of Christ has been taken up, or caught up, to heaven. And at the end of the church age, a door will be opened and will be taken home. And that's exactly what verse 1 says. And behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up here or get up here. It's time to leave this earth and to come home. Okay, this is perhaps the most misunderstood promise in the entire Bible. There is so much confusion about what is the rapture, when will it occur, is it truly in the Bible somewhere, the word, the English word rapture doesn't show up in the Bible somewhere, so can we believe it? And we're going to unpack all of that through this study. Okay, the world right now seems to be totally frozen in fear over the last year, and last March, in one short three-week period, there was almost 50% of the world's population under lockdown orders on earth. So you had, for the first time since the Passover in Egypt, the church was basically locked inside of our home 
for the better part of nine months. And at this moment, as the church, we really have a captive audience right around the world. There's a lot of people looking for hope in the world. They've lost a lot of hope last year, and they're looking for the church. How will we respond? Where do we place our hope? Who do we turn to for peace in turbulence? And are we fear-stricken? Or are we overflowing with love, joy, and peace that really surpasses all understanding? And the entire world is lost looking for answers. And it's our duty to point them to the word of God for those answers. And so we're going to do that today in a deep, deep way. You know, even the people that know nothing about the Bible have heard some of the main topics, right? I remember as a, I remember as a kid hearing all about the mark of the beast, who's the Antichrist, what is this rapture thing, where does it happen, can we understand it scripturally, or is it something that somebody just made up hundreds of years ago? You know, what is the truth? And I found this fascinating. I was doing some research on this earlier this year, but there's random YouTube videos. If you just put the title word rapture in the video, it was getting three, four, five million views around the world just by having that word in the title. And so the world is clearly, clearly looking for an answer to that question. And our duty is to point them to the word of God and point them to the truth of God's word in really what we have to look for that's called our blessed hope as the church, as the bride of Christ. You know, these are major newspapers, not fringe tabloids that you get next to the bubble gum at the grocery store checkout counter, but they talk about, is COVID-19 one of the four horsemen, right, in chapter six of Revelation? Is the mark of the beast somehow related to the vaccine? Is what's going on with all of this? I mean, people are grasping for answers, but really, what does the Bible say about it all, and how should we live as a result, that's the bottom line. You, when you take everything else aside, everything else, just push it aside. What does the Bible say about our future? That is what we need to look to. So, the word of God is more readily available than any other time in history. But yet, it's really consumed less in the body of Christ also than any other time in history. And in Amos 8, God declares that he will send a famine in the land, not of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And what I, when you study famines throughout history, one thing you will find is that in a famine, people will consume anything, which is why you can have false doctrine, false teachers, false leaders of churches stand up and declare something that's not biblical and people take it as truth and eat it and consume it and then leave thinking that they know what's really going to happen. And that's why you get three million views just for using the word rapture in a YouTube video. It's exactly why. Because people are looking for the truth and they will consume anything. So really, now more than ever, we've got to be completely grounded in God's word. So our blessed hope. The days ahead, Jesus in Matthew 24 says, But as of the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So why does Jesus point us to the days of Noah to be similar to the time of his return? You know, there, there were three people groups in the flood of Noah. When you go back to Genesis 5 and 6, there were those raptured before the flood. Enoch in Genesis 5, 24, he's a model of the church. There were those preserved through the flood, Noah and seven others in the ark. Okay, they are a type or a model of Israel through the seven-year tribulation period. And those who perished in the flood, as Revelation would call the earth dwellers. So, Revelation 4.1 is the event for those raptured before the judgment. So let's unpack that event throughout the scripture. Let's take the entire counsel of God's word and see what does God have to say about this event, the closing of the church age. You know, the anticipation of Jesus's return really has prevailed throughout church history since he ascended. And in fact, second Thessalonians was written 
to believers who thought they missed the rapture. You know, they were so grounded in this doctrine and this truth of God's word that they thought they missed it. And the whole letter that the Holy Spirit wrote to them is, no, you didn't miss it. Just sit tight. Some things have to happen first. And as the church, the body of Christ, we really are to expect the Lord at any moment. It's referred to as the doctrine of imminence. Okay, so Jesus is clear that we are to be about his business until he returns. In Luke 19, and he called 10 of his servants and delivered them 10 pounds and said to them, occupy till I come. And it's so different than the instructions in Matthew 24, which are to Israel during the tribulation. Okay, when you look at the four gospels, Matthew, Jesus is portrayed as the line of the tribe of Judah. It's a very Israeli letter. Yes, it's a gospel to us, but it was written, Matthew was Jewish. He views Jesus through the eyes of a Jew, and Jesus is talking to his Jewish disciples. Luke is quite the opposite. Luke focuses on Jesus' humanity, okay, as a Gentile physician. So he views Jesus through that lens, and Jesus speaks through that lens. And Jesus, in Luke 19, tells his church to occupy until I come. You know, how can you occupy if you're running for your life in the tribulation trying to hide out so that you don't have to reject Jesus to save your own life? You know, you can't. You, ha- you, ha- you would have to be in hiding, hoping that God provides food and water, which is what he gives to Israel in Matthew 24. In Luke 17, I tell you, in the night there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken, the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. So notice that the people are going about their business when the rapture occurs. And in that, in that section of scripture, you have morning, noon, and night in all in one passage. Because they would grind the mill in the morning, they would work the field in the afternoon, and they would obviously sleep at night. And so it's a testament to the round earth just in Jesus's discourse right there in Luke 17. But they are going about their business. They're grinding at the mill, they're working in the field, they're resting, and boom, in one instant, the entire world, one is taken and one is left. So there's so much confusion about the rapture, but who is the author of confusion? You know, in 1 Corinthians 14, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. You know, in the blessed hope, when you understand this concept, it is the greatest promise of peace you will carry in your life to know that you are not appointed to that time that is to come upon all the world. In 2 Timothy 2.15, this is one of our challenges when you get into this statement or into this concept in the Bible. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing The word of truth. Okay, rightly dividing, which means this is spoken about all through Scripture, but the problem and why there's so much confusion around it is there's two different events that Scripture focuses on the rapture, where we meet Him in the air and we go home to forever be with the Lord, and then the return in power when we come back with Jesus in Revelation 19 to rule and reign with Him on the earth. So these two different events in Scripture, you've got to, as according to 2 Timothy 2.15, you have to rightly divide the word of truth, meaning don't confuse those two events, which is what a lot of people do, and it messes up your understanding of Scripture. So clearly, the doctrine of imminence, we are to expect Jesus at any moment, and it's all over the Bible. And since we have an extra hour, I thought we'd read each of these kind of verse by verse. But, but we won't do that because we have some pizza eating a little bit. So these are just a selection. This is not even an all-inclusive list. This is just a sampling of scriptures from the New Testament to the church to expect Jesus at any moment. Now, when you rightly divide these, we'll look at how they are separated between those two events. Okay, the harpazo. You know, one of the greatest arguments against the rapture is that, hey, the word is not in the Bible. So how can you believe in this 
doctrine when the word's not even in the word of God? Well, the problem is the word, the English word rapture is taken from the Latin Vulgate rapturo, which comes from the Greek word, the harpazo. Okay, the harpazo. So the Greek word where this term rapture is derived appears in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and it's translated in, in our King James Bible as caught up, to be caught up, to be snatched away by force. That's literally what it means. And in Latin, it's rapturo. In the Greek, it's harpazo. And elsewhere, it's used to describe how the spirit caught up Philip near Gaza and brought him. That's in Acts 8. It describes Paul's experience of being caught up into the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. It's the same word used in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It's to indicate the actual removal of people from earth to heaven. So we're admonished to save some people with fear, making sure they are raptured out of the fire or the judgment. In Jude 1.23, this same word is harpazo. And others save with fear, pulling them or harpazo them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. You know, a lot of people come to know Jesus just by the very fact they don't want to go into the judgment. You know, and others you save with compassion. When you, you read the verse right before this in Jude, some you save with compassion, some you save with fear. And I remember as a kid, so many people growing up we're so confused about that time period. Remember the whole Left Behind series and the movies and Kirk Cameron running around trying to figure out what in the world's happening. And a lot of kids were accepting Jesus because they, they were just fearful, right? They were fearful of going into that time period that the Bible speaks about. But in fact, there are seven raptures in the Bible, which I find fascinating because seven is always the number that of Completion of what God does on behalf of man. And so it's the number of completion that the rapture event, according to scripture and how it's chronicled, is complete on behalf of man. And it's something that the Lord Jesus will do for us. So Enoch, we talked about that in Genesis 5 and Hebrews 11, chronicles that. Elijah in 2 Kings 2, Jesus is raptured in Mark 16, Acts 1, and Revelation 12. Philip in Acts 8, Paul when he goes up to the third heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, the body of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4. In Revelation 12, when Jesus is caught up to his throne to heaven, that also could represent the body of Christ because we, Jesus is the head, we are the body. In John, right here in Revelation 4.1, for what we just reviewed in verses 1 and 2. Okay, the rapture. Let's read the, this is the main verse that promises this in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep, meaning those who died in Jesus before us. Okay? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, I want you to notice at the end, we are to comfort one another with this promise. This is not a promise of, hey, you're going to go into seven, the worst seven-year period on planet Earth ever in history but it's okay, I'll preserve you through it. You know, I will protect you. That's not as comforting as in Revelation 3.10, I will remove you from the very hour of that time that will come upon all the world. That is much more comforting, right? Than us running for our lives, trying to figure out where are we gonna hide? How will we be sustained? What are we to do? Jesus says, occupy till I come. When it's that time, I will descend from heaven with a shout, and you will meet me in the clouds to ever be with me. Now, notice also in this verse in 1 Thessalonians 4, we meet him in the air. Jesus does not come back to the earth. Okay, and this is, this is an indictment on who is the prince of the power of the air, right? According to the Bible, it's Satan right now. He is the prince of the power of the air. And I love that Jesus is meeting us 
in his domain to bring us home, to show who has ultimate authority over that domain. It's Jesus. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are not appointed to wrath. In Revelation 3.10, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. And we looked at this deeply in the letter to Philadelphia two weeks ago. Okay, it's the hour of temptation that is to come upon who? All the world. And why? To try them that, number one, have rejected Jesus. It's one last call. It's one last, please, I'm coming back to set up my kingdom. Accept me now before it's too late. It's that to drive people to the brink of finally admitting and submitting to the Lord. Okay, so what is happening in Revelation 6 when Jesus starts to unlock the sealed scroll? In Revelation 6, 17. So we'll be here in about two weeks in this study. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Okay, the, the world, that is the world in Revelation 6 crying out that they know, they recognize this is the wrath of Almighty God. This is him saying, enough is enough. It's gone too far. It's time for me to set up my kingdom on the earth with my bride and those that faithfully have trusted and accepted me. So in the Bible, these words are very specific. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we're not appointed to wrath. In Revelation 6, his wrath has come. Okay, so just notice the connection. These promises throughout Scripture are referred to as our blessed hope. In Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the blessed hope. Okay, there's models of this all over the scripture. One that we, are, we covered in chapter 1 and we'll look at next week as we go through chapter, the rest of chapter 4 and 5. The seven lampstands. Remember in chapter 1, Revelation 1.12, the seven lampstands are on earth with Jesus. And he tells you they represent the church. In Revelation 4.5, they're in heaven before the throne room of God. So the church is on earth in chapter 1, goes through chapters 2 and 3 as the seven letters of the seven churches. And then in chapter 4, we are in heaven with Jesus. So the, the, the rapture occurs in verse 1, and the lampstands are in front of the throne in verse 5. And, and notice, they are in heaven before Jesus comes forward to take the scroll. And we're going to do a really deep study in chapters 4 and 5 next week on what is that scroll written within and on the back side that the Father is holding, waiting, as that little intro video had, for a man on earth, under the earth, or in heaven that could take the scroll, that had authority to take the scroll. And what that scroll is, is the title deed to the earth. Because Jesus is going to take back what he rightfully paid for. You know, we get redemption, our resurrected bodies, but in the New Testament we learn that the earth is groaning to be redeemed as well. Since the fracture, okay, since the fall of man, and then the flood of Noah, the earth itself is even groaning to be redeemed. In the millennium, Jesus is going to put a lot of that back together. Okay, in Revelation 4 and 5, we'll also look at this deeply next week, but there's 24 elders around the throne of God. Now, they are kings and priests, and they declare that and in Revelation chapter 1, we, Jesus even says, he has made us kings and priests to our most high God. There are four visions of the throne room of the universe in the Bible. Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation, and the, each one of them is consistent except only Revelation discloses the 24 elders. None of the others have that detail in them. And because the church was hidden in the Old Testament. Okay, in 1 Peter 2.9, God declares, But ye are a chosen generation, a what? A royal priesthood, a king and a priest. Okay, all, ever since the 12 tribes of Israel, the king was supposed to come through the line of Judah, the priest was to come through the line of Levi. They were never to co-mingle. And when you look at that in the Old Testament, there's a several events where a king tried to do a priestly duty or vice versa. 
and God always corrects them and says, no, you're not to do that. Okay, so there's three kings and priests in the Bible. Jesus, Melchizedek, remember in Genesis, Abraham brings tithes to Melchizedek, who is a king and a priest from Salem or Jerusalem. Okay, so he's one. Jesus is the other. And then the church, we're the third one, the kings and priests. And in Revelation 1.6, that's where it's declared and hath made us kings and priests to our God. In Revelation 5, we sing this song, redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests. So that's the song that these 24 elders sing around the throne of God. And notice it's not out of Israel. It's not out of New York City. It's not out of Paris. It's out of every kindred tongue and nation on planet Earth. And that's exactly what the church is. Remember when Jesus was crucified, the veil was torn, open house, come one, come all. So anyone can be a member of the church right now before that age closes. Okay, so I want to get the order of events. It's important to understand this, but let's work backwards for a moment. The seven-year tribulation starts when the Antichrist affirms a covenant with Israel. And when you get into the detail of that Hebrew word, it means literally he strengthens a covenant that's already in place. So something is going to be written between Israel and some other group of people or nations or someone. The Antichrist from Daniel affirms or strengthens, confirms that covenant, makes it stronger with them. He comes forth in Revelation 6.1 with the false covenant. And by peace, he will destroy many from Daniel. In Revelation 6.1, it's the false white rider on the white horse, and he rides out with a bow. It's not a weapon. That word is the same Greek word used as the rainbow from Genesis 6, okay, after the flood of Noah. And what was the rainbow for from God? It was a covenant of peace, right? The Antichrist will have a false covenant of peace with the world, but through that peace, he will destroy many. So before he comes forth, Jesus must take the scroll, okay, in chapter 5 of Revelation. Prior to Jesus taking the scroll, the church is in heaven watching our Lord come forward in that pivotal event. And in order for him to make that covenant, he must rise to power. For him to rise to power, he must be revealed. To be revealed, the restraining indwelling Holy Spirit must be removed. And the church is the indwelling temple of the Holy Spirit right now. Seven times the New Testament is confirmed, you are the temple of God. That's you, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Thus, the church must be removed. Okay, the restraining Holy Spirit being removed. This is in 2 Thessalonians. Remember, we talked about this in the beginning. This letter was written to the people that thought they had missed the rapture. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed. That's the title of the Antichrist. There's 33 t- different titles of the Antichrist in the Old Testament and 13 in the New. This is one of them. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. You know, this guy is going to do things that the world is going to totally buy into with false signs, lying wonders. Think back to Egypt with Moses and Aaron. Remember the false occultic priests could do some of the miracles, but not all of them. Okay, do, do not be surprised when you see miracles happen. The question is, who gets the glory? Is it Jesus or is it somebody else? Because Satan can come with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And he's going to pull such a trick on the world that this is the false Christ. Remember, Jesus said it would deceive the very elect if it were possible. If is being the key word there, because we won't be here for it to be deceptive to us. This word in the Greek, he who now letteth, it literally means to hold back, detain, retain from going away, to restrain or hinder the course or progress of that which hinders Antichrist from making his appearance. That's from a Greek lexicon. So it literally means 
that which hinders Antichrist from making his appearance. Remember, the spirit of Antichrist is already working in the world. So what is keeping it from coming fully upon the world? It's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives within us. Okay, so these two future events we talked about, the rapture versus the return in power. Okay, two different events. And the rapture, you know, a lot of people will make the argument too, well, hey, the rapture is not in the Old Testament. Well, it is. You just have to read the New Testament, understand what it's about, and go back to the Old Testament to realize, oh, wow, it's been there all along. It just was hidden in the Old Testament until now. So here's verses all throughout the Bible that speak of the rapture. Let's look at three of them from the Old Testament. Psalms 27, 5, for in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. Okay, that term, the time of trouble, is all over the Old Testament, speaking of the seven-year tribulation. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. Who is that rock? It's Jesus. All through the Bible, that rock is Jesus. And he's going to hide us in his pavilion, in his pavilion, and set us upon that rock, which is Jesus, during the time of trouble. In Psalms 31, Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Okay, so again, it's that whole concept of being hidden with the Lord. In Isaiah 26, this is one of my favorites in the Old Testament. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. So you are to go and get and be hidden until that time is over. When we come out as a bridegroom with the bride in Joel, and we come back in Revelation 19 with Jesus. Okay, the return in power is quite different. Here's a lot of verses about Jesus coming to rule and to reign on earth in power. First Chronicles 16, Then shall the trees of the wood sing out at the presence of the Lord, because he cometh to judge the earth. That's in Revelation 19 when we come back with him. Psalms 96, let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the fields be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. That's what he does for a thousand years in the millennium. He judges the world in righteousness. This promise is all over the Bible. In fact, the return in power is three, at least three prophecies to one compared to Jesus' first arrival to die for us. And it's a big part of why Israel missed it. Okay, Isaiah 26. Remember the last verse about us going to hide for a little bit in our chambers? Then very next verse, For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. So you have this verse, this final verse of Jesus coming out of his place to judge the inhabitants of the earth. Okay, now why? What is the whole point of this seven-year tribulation? Well, there's a lot of reasons. We learned in Revelation 3, it's to try them that dwell upon the earth, to make a final declaration one way or the other for or against Jesus. Right? It's enough of this gray area. It's time for you to make a choice one way or the other because I'm coming to set my kingdom. I want you to be a part of it, but you've got to finally decide yes or no. But the other reason is Hosea 5.15, speaking of Israel. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense and they will seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. See, part of the other reason is that God wants to drive Israel to the brink where they have no choice but to acknowledge they missed him the first time. And once they acknowledge their offense, Hosea 6 chronicles their prayer to Jesus where they cry out to him and then he returns immediately to Jerusalem, sets his foot on Mount Zion. Zechariah talks about how it will split, it will cleave one half to the other. 
And then Isaiah 63, when Jesus wipes out all of the armies that have surrounded Jerusalem and want to take over the world, when he returns, Israel's on the run. They've gone down to Basra through Jordan. I'm sorry, uh, Petra. Jesus comes from Basra. They go down to Petra and they're crying out to him in that moment to return. Isaiah 63 chronicles the event that Jesus walks into Petra and they see him for the first time since they rejected him. And it's amazing. And this is Israel speaking. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And this is Jesus speaking. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And then they ask him, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? Remember at that moment when Jesus rides back and we're with him, he uses the word of his mouth, wipes out all of his enemies, and that blood comes up to the depth of the horse's bridle. So his garments are dyed with the blood of his enemies, and then he walks down to Petra to get them. And he says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. The day of vengeance. You know, when Jesus goes into Luke in the synagogue, he opens up the book of Isaiah. And he goes and he reads from Isaiah and he says, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal the sick to let the lame walk, to heal the blind. He goes through all this list, and then he stops, and he tells them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ear. And he closes the book to Isaiah 60, and he lays it down. What, when you go back and you read where he was reading from in Isaiah, he stops at this little comma, and beyond that it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Because that day has not yet come yet. So he stops reading there, and he says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now that little break has lasted almost 2,000 years, but it's coming to a close quickly. And that's our blessed hope to go home with him. Okay, and Jesus says, for the day of vengeance is in my heart. It's that intentional language again. And the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. And I wonder that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought them down their, and brought down their strength to the earth. Okay, that's in Isaiah 63. So these future events, you know, when you separate these two events, the rapture has a lot of commonalities. It's the translation of believers, translates saints go to heaven. The earth is not judged yet. It's imminent at any moment. It's predicted all through the Old Testament. It's believers only. It's before the day of the Lord, before the day of vengeance or the indignation and wrath. And we meet him in the air. The other side, when you rightly divide the word of truth, the second coming of Jesus to rule, there's no translation involved. Translated saints return to earth with him in Colossians 3. We read about that in Revelation 19. The earth is judged. It follows definite predicted signs. It's predicted all through the Old Testament. It affects all men on earth. It concludes the day of the Lord before the establishment of the kingdom, and we come back with him. So these two different events, they have totally different characteristics, totally different events in Scripture. Okay, in Revelation 4.1, back to our verses today. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. What is this door that will be opened? Okay, this gateway, this portal, this, there's doorways all through the scripture. Remember, Elijah was caught up in the whirlwind, in a gateway, in a portal. There's these things that open up all through the Bible. Remember Jacob's ladder when he was climbing around on the mountains and he laid his head on the rock and he had the vision. And at that point, angels were ascending and descending to and from earth at that, at that stage up into a gateway and back down. This door... This is not a door like we think of a door. This is a door that is a way to heaven. It's a way to get to the throne room of the universe. 
a gateway. It's a way to go into the presence of the Almighty God. And this word in the Greek is thyra. And it's used as an opening like a door, an entranceway or passage into the door through which sheep go in by the name of him who brings salvation to those who follow his guidance. That's actually a definition in the Greek, word, in the Greek dictionary for this. A door which sheep go in by the name of him who brings salvation. You know, who is that name? That name is Jesus. Now, remember Jesus, he talks about us as his sheep all through the, Old, the New Testament. He's the great shepherd. We're his flock. Okay, and he opens doors for us all through Revelation. We talked a lot about doors in Revelation 3.8 and 3.20. Who can close a door that God opens and who can open a door that God shuts? Just like the Ark of Noah. There's going to come a time when we go into that door and Jesus closes it and the world is going to be clamoring to get into it, but it is shut. And really the question is, did you do everything you could to get your loved ones and those in your circle of influence, your sphere of influence, those you know do not have a place in heaven right now that are not saved, did you do everything you could to witness to them? Because there's going to come a time where they're going to be banging on the ark, pleading to go in, just like in Noah's day. Okay, Jesus spoke about some doors that would not prevail against the church in Matthew 16. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Look at what Jesus is saying here. You know, what are the gates of hell, and why will they not prevail against the church? So we see a lot of dark gates open in Revelation. And, he's, and Jesus is promising that those gates will not prevail against us. And yet in Revelation, those gates do prevail against the saints and the two witnesses. And those who accept Jesus during this time period. See, when you're sensitive to this, there's lots of different groups of people in the Bible that have different relationships with Jesus. Jesus spoke of John the Baptist. You know, no man born of a woman is greater than John. And yet he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And he says John was the close of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. Remember, the law and the prophets were until John. So that Old Testament relationship with the saints, it closed with John the Baptist. And there was a new relationship started with the church, which is us. And then when you get to Revelation, we're going to see the relationship of those that are martyred in that seven-year period. They have different roles and responsibilities than us. They have palm branches. They're serving Jesus night and day in his temple. We, on the other hand, are 24 elders sitting on thrones, ruling and reigning with Jesus. It's a different relationship. And so what you have to understand is when Jesus says that, he's speaking very specifically of our relationship with him, not the saints in the tribulation. It's also why it's really critical that you accept Jesus now. If you, if you have friends and loved ones that don't know him, get them saved. Okay, this is also when we get our resurrected bodies at the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Okay, the last trump is here. At the last trump, remember 1 Thessalonians 4, with the voice of a trumpet. Okay, the voice of a trumpet. And notice the dead are involved, just like the dead in Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4. The dead in Christ shall rise first. The dead in the church who died for Jesus as a member of the church shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up with them. What is this twinkling of an eye? Um, the twinkling of an eye. So we shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Remember Paul spoke about, I don't want to be naked. He called it being with dead in Christ, but without your resurrected body. He called it being naked. He wanted the rapture to occur in his lifetime so that he could be in his immortal resurrected body. Okay, what is the twinkling of an eye? I, I added this because we're just about over here, but I want to make sure you guys were awake. So I added this, just a math problem here, the twinkling of an eye. So this is, it's not a blink. It's the time which light travels through the eye, hits the back of the eye, and reflects off the eye. So when you actually do the math in the thickness of your retina and how deep your pupil is, 
it's roughly 8.895 times 10 to the negative 11 seconds. So it's a little longer, if you, st if you study quantum physics, it's a little longer than the Planck limit of time, which is 5.39 times 10 to the negative 44 seconds. It's actually quite a bit longer, but man, it's gonna happen so fast, you literally will have your resurrected body before you can even know what's happening. It's just gonna happen that fast. And so, and this is based on the current speed of light, not the speed of light when it was faster back in Genesis. So, so there you go. You knew that, right, Ryan? I, I know you did. Okay, last couple slides here. How many of us are currently in possession of our home? You know, I'm not, you're not. We have an eternal home that's waiting for us. Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. In John 14, in my father's house, or in, in that new city, the new Jerusalem, right? That's the namesake of our church because everything we do here is to further build that new city that Jesus went to go prepare for us. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, remember that's one of my favorite titles of Jesus, I am. There ye may be also, and whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. We should all be excited about our heavenly inheritance, this new Jerusalem that we are going to be taken to at some point for our eternal home. Okay, the last, last thing here. The doctrine of the rapture is modeled completely after the Jewish wedding, and specifically the Galilean Jewish wedding. It's that whole relationship with Jesus. He's the bridegroom, we are the bride. It's all modeled after the Jewish wedding. In the Jewish wedding, there's a ketubah or a betrothal. There's a payment of the purchase price. And so the father and the bride would be standing there. The bridegroom would come and make a proposition and a proposal. And the bridegroom or the bride's dad would have some type of payment price, right? in order for the bridegroom to buy the bride. And the payment of the purchase price and the bride was set apart or sanctified and she had to forever be in her wedding gown or her bridal attire. And she had no idea when the bridegroom would come to take her home. The bridegroom would then depart for his father's house, okay, just like Jesus in John 14. He would prepare a room addition and the bride would be preparing ever, every single day for the imminent return of the bridegroom. And she never knew when, but when the bridegroom would come back, he would have a wedding party with him. In this case, the angels, the host of heaven, will be with him when he brings us home. And he went through the city with a trumpet, and he would blow a trumpet, and that's when the bride knew it was time. It was time. The wedding was upon us. It was time to go home with her bridegroom forever. And it was a surprise gathering. And literally she would come out and the bridegroom's caravan, if you want to call it that, or his wedding party would have this platform that the bride would sit on and they would hoist her up. You know, she would be caught up, right? And then taken to where they would have the wedding, the supper, everything, the celebration. And then there is the hoopah, the wedding. Okay, this models our relationship with Jesus. The covenant was established in 1 Corinthians 11. The purchase price was none other than Jesus himself in 1 Corinthians 6. We as the bride are to be set apart, sanctified for him, ever waiting, right? An unashamed bride, just like New City Church, part of our founding. In Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 1 and Hebrews 10, we're reminded constantly of that covenant in 1 Corinthians 11. The bridegroom, we just read about it, left for his father's house in John 14. And then there's an escort with him to gather his bride in 1 Thessalonians 4. And so it models, everything models our relationship with him and the rapture. Okay, if you do not know Jesus and you want to make sure you get raptured before the wrath, it's simple. If you're watching this online all around the world... If you need Jesus, this is the verse every week we talk about, Romans 10, 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, 
and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So you can make sure right now that your ticket to home is secure before things get really bad. You know, he wants you to be in your forever place with him. That's his will, according to 2 Peter and 1 John 3 and John 3. And you just go down the list. He wants you to be home with him. So take your place in the bride of Christ right now. Because we're going home soon. Isaiah 1, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they shall be like crim- red like crimson, they shall be wool. Reasoning together in Amos, how can two walk together lest they be in agreement? See, Jesus wants to be in agreement with you to forgive your sins, but you have to take that step in Romans ten nine to be in agreement with him. And once you're in agreement with him, then you can walk with him, according to Amos. Right? How can two walk together lest they be in agreement? And you can't walk with Jesus until you're in agreement with him. And the agreement is, Jesus, you did it all. I did nothing to earn my salvation. You paid the price, and I want to be a member of your bridal party. That's it. And once you do that, you can have your forever home. So with that, if you need prayer or salvation, you can email us right here at newcitychurchokc at gmail.com. And wherever you are, reach out to one of us. There's chat online where you can ask questions if you need salvation. Email us if you've got questions, but we're here for you. So thank you, guys. I'll close this out in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the promise of being caught up to you to forever be with our Lord in heaven, awaiting to sit there on our throne that you prepared for us as the 24 elders and to watch you come forward in the complete authority that you alone have to take that scroll and to redeem earth once again. And Lord, if there's anyone within the sound of my voice and anyone within the sound of this online platform that does not know you, God, we are praying for their salvation. We are praying that you would come forward and that you would save them from the uttermost and let them be, let them be a member of the body of Christ before we come home. Lord, I thank you for the promise that you've placed all through your scripture to protect us and preserve us and to deliver us and to save us out of the very time of trouble itself. God, bless this study as we continue through Revelation next week in chapters four and five. Lord, we thank you. Be with us in the week ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.